Well, hey, everybody. It is great to see you, whether you're here in the room or joining us online. And by the way, I need to do a special welcome to you if you're visiting for the first time or maybe for the first time in a long time. You didn't know this when you drove in today or tuned in through whatever your platform of streaming choice is. Uh, but you really couldn't have picked a better week uh, because today we actually begin a series called Reinventing Religion. So you're getting in on chapter one of a journey that's going to take us right up to Easter Sunday. And honestly, um, this stuff has been stirring in me for a really, really long time. And it's some of the most important material that I've ever shared with you because it takes us right to the heart, both of what Jesus came to do and who his followers are to be in our world today. All right, so to get us going, what I need to do is tell you a story about an interesting conversation that I had on an airplane way back before the pandemic. You remember like the good old days? Who's with me? Yeah, yeah, when you didn't have to wait in a 75-minute line at Starbucks at the airport? Right. Uh, now, I'm aware, this is a little disclosure here, I'm aware that many pastors have stories that take place on airplanes. And if you've been around church, you've probably heard a few. Uh, generally, in the story, the pastor ends up sounding very heroic, like he or she leads someone to place their faith in Jesus at 35,000 feet while enjoying a small bag of pretzels and an awkwardly small Diet Coke. You with me on this? Yeah, but uh, <clears throat> that is not the case with this particular story. So here's the setup. Uh, it was early January, and I was on my way to Israel with a bunch of highly impressionable seminary students, and it was going to be a good time. Uh, the first leg of our journey uh, included a ridiculously long overnight trip from Chicago O'Hare to Istanbul in Turkey. And, and I'm well aware that most people don't like 12-hour red-eye flights. But you should know that people who are over six foot three, like me, really don't like 12 hour long flights, unless, of course, they manage to score an emergency exit row seat, which I did. Here are a picture of my legs to prove it. I like to think of the exit row as Dutch guy first class. Anyway, um, my, my plan was to take an Ambien after dinner and sleep while the plane crossed the Atlantic. Uh, the flight departed at like 11.30 p.m., so I was tired, I had leg room, and praise be to the Lord, there was even an empty seat next to me. Cue other photo. I mean, does this ever happen? This is my bag, that is the empty seat. It was perfect, and then it happened. As I watched in horror, a flight attendant escorted another tall passenger down the aisle and proceeded to seat her next to me. Now, I must confess it in this moment, I was not thinking Jesus-y thoughts, okay? <laughs> nope. Uh, anyway, this interloper introduced herself and then apologized for taking the empty seat, saying something like, man, I bet you were thinking this is gonna be great for the all-night flight. And in response, I just smiled <laughs> because that's what Jesus would do. And then as I was putting on my noise-canceling headphones, she started talking. Yes, she's one of those people. And if you're one of those people, you don't know what I'm talking about. But if you're not, if you're not one of those people, you're like, oh, no, yeah. And she says, hey, you know, where are you traveling to? Istanbul is like a hub, so people generally fly through Istanbul, not just to Istanbul. And when I told her Israel, she looked back at me and said, you're not a Christian, are you? <laughs> Apparently, I don't look like a Christian. <laughs> anyway, like in this moment, I had a choice to make. Because in my experience, 
uh, people who say things like, you're not a Christian, or you generally don't like Christians very much. And in my experience, people who say things like, you're not a Christian, or you really don't care for pastors that much. And, and so I was like wrestling, and I thought, okay, what do I do with this? And, and, and I decided that honesty was probably the best policy. She seemed kind, at least, so I confessed my vocation. And in response, she like sat upright in her chair and looked at me, and she said, you're kidding. And I thought, apparently, I don't look like a pastor either. <laughs> That's kind of rough. Anyway, now then she said to me, well, I gave up on the whole church Jesus God thing years ago. And she said, in fact, I can't believe anybody would want to be a pastor anymore. And she's like, no offense. And then she went on to explain, she was really forward and all that, but she went on to explain that she had grown up attending a suburban church near Chicago where she watched church leaders essentially kick out people who didn't follow their rules or didn't fit their culture. I remember she said something like, you know, they were ruthless about rooting out whatever they identified as sinful behavior. And she said, I got the sense that at this church, if you weren't perfect, you weren't welcomed. If you weren't perfect, you weren't welcomed. And she said, and then I, and I just watched as, as hurtful things were done to people that I cared deeply about. And eventually I just sort of threw up my hands. I said, this church thing isn't worth it. And so I just walked away. And then she asked me to unpack the reasons why any sane person would want to be a pastor in the modern world. And so I began by apologizing for her experience with my fellow Christians. I said, you know, most of the church leaders that I know are really well-intentioned when they do the things that they do. They think they're doing the right thing, even, even if they're not doing the things that Jesus would necessarily want them to do. And then I shared with her some of the thoughts that I want to share with you over the next few weeks. And, and here's why. I've been a church professional for a long time, right? Um, and I'm telling you, unfortunately, airplane girls' experience with church really isn't all that unique. <laughs> in fact, in an honest moment, like many of us who gather today would confess that we've had a bad experience with church or church people at some point in our lives. Maybe that's why you're tuning in line and not in the room. Uh, we saw something done to someone or we experienced something that was done to us. And when that happened, like something inside of us wanted to scream, this just can't be what Jesus had in mind for his church. I mean, if there's any truth to any of this, it should be different than this. It should be better than this. And if you've ever had that feeling, if you've ever had that thought, you should know, as far as I'm concerned, you're right. I think church can be different and much better. In fact, the mission to help make church better and different and more like what Jesus had in mind is one of the reasons I dropped out of med school to become a pastor. I went to med school for two weeks. So if you have a thing that needs looking at, I would not recommend me. We got lots of docs here and we can introduce you to them. But anyway, with the rest of our time today though, I wanna show you a little bit by what I mean by different, better, and more like what Jesus had in mind. And I'll begin with an observation that goes like this. Most of the things that people resist about church are things that church should resist. Most of the things that people resist about church, the people on the outside looking in that they say, well, I wouldn't go to church because they do that. Those are things that the church should resist. In other words, they weren't part of Jesus' original plan for his church. Because if you think about it, like if you boil it all down, church really should be attractive and compelling. Because from an outsider's perspective, church is a community of people who seek to follow the teachings of a man who we believe was sent by God to help us know God's heart and to clear the path to a restored relationship with God. I mean, there's not really much to resist about that. You don't have to necessarily like it, but, but there isn't much to resist. 
I mean, think about it. You can pretty much summarize Jesus' teachings. If I had to boil it all down for you, I would say this. I'd say, well, Jesus taught his followers to love God, to love people, actually to love God by loving people, and then even to love their enemies. And moreover, and this is fascinating to me as I started digging into the history, for the first 300 years or so of the church's existence, Christians weren't persecuted for being judgmental or exclusive. Think about that. Like you ask people on the street why they don't go to church if they don't go to church, it's like, well, Christians are judgmental and they're exclusive. And say that wasn't the case in the beginning. Christians were persecuted in the beginning, but they were persecuted because they said, we follow Jesus and not Caesar. Like, Jesus is Lord, not Caesar is Lord. And it got me thinking, like, wouldn't it be great if the only thing that people said about us that was bad was that, you know, they said, well, those Christians, they, they follow Jesus and they don't do what's normal and expected in our culture. They live by a different set of priorities. I mean, that would be great. What if they said things like, you know, Christians are great neighbors and they're great bosses. And, and I, you know, I don't mind working for one, but, and I hope my daughter marries one because they're really great people. I just can't handle the whole devotion to Jesus thing for myself. It's like, I've never met anybody who, um, who said they resist Christians because we follow Jesus, but I have heard a thousand other reasons that people resist church. All of which, at least for me, raises some really great questions that we're going to unpack over the next few weeks. Like, how exactly did the church become so resistible? And how is it that there are so many things that people say they don't like about us? Like, where did all that other stuff come from? Like, what happened? And, and here's what we're going to discover in the series. And honestly, it's a bit surprising. It's the observation that church today is not resistible because of new things that were added to what Jesus had in mind for his church. We're resistible because of old assumptions about how religion had to function that were supposed to be retired when Jesus reinvented religion, but that never really went away. People resist us not for new things that were added, but for old things that were reinserted. Okay, so to help you what I mean by all of that, we need to talk a little bit about what pretty much every ancient religion looked like. And as I see it, they almost always had four things in common. Like if you look, historically speaking, religions had four things in common. I will describe them this way. They all had sacred places, sacred texts, sacred leaders, and sincere followers. And honestly, I don't think sincere is the best word for the follower, but I really wanted to start them all with the letter S. Okay, this is a little trick I learned in pastor school to help you remember. So uh, back to the list. Ancient religions almost always had sacred buildings or temples, sacred places where someone uh, would go and inside of which there were these hallowed uh, sacred texts or inscriptions. And these texts or inscriptions were always controlled by and interpreted by the sacred religious professionals who would tell the sincere followers how to live their lives or else. Right? Like, or else they would be judged or cursed or punished by the God for whom that particular religion was developed. And I know what a few of you are thinking if you grew up in church, because I just described your past church experience, right? You're like, oh yeah, sacred place, sacred text, sacred leaders, scaring me all the time, and sincere followers, that's me. So if that's your thought, you're, you're right. The modern church has often been organized around these same four things. And honestly, that's not a good thing. Not at all. I'm convinced, in fact, that's why so many people like Airplane Girl resist Christianity in our world. But the good news is that it doesn't have to be that way. In fact, it shouldn't be this way. Because, um, and this is the big idea for the entire series as well as today, 
uh, it goes like this. God sent Jesus to completely reinvent human religion and to introduce the world into something unprecedented, dramatically better, and entirely new. In fact, as Jesus imagined it, religion would no longer be organized around sacred places, and it wouldn't be controlled by a small group of you know, sacred leaders. In Jesus' mind, nobody was supposed to need a pastor or a priest to tell them how to please God, and nobody would ever need another human being to offer a sacrifice to God on their behalf. Moreover, as Jesus imagined it, all the myriad of religious rules and regulations to help people relate to God were going to give way to one simple, beautiful, movement-defining ethic that would serve as a filter for the lives of his followers. It was nothing short of a complete reinvention of religion on planet Earth. And with the rest of our time today, I want to show you how I came to that conclusion, and I'm going to do it by making four observations from the accounts of Jesus' life. The first one goes like this. Religion as Jesus intended is to be rooted in people, not places. And we see this idea throughout the Gospels, throughout those accounts of Jesus' life, but I would say most clearly in a conversation Jesus had with some of his first disciples after hiking them some 60 miles north of the Sea of Galilee, which was kind of their base of operations, to the region of a town called Caesarea Philippi. And upon their arrival, Jesus asked his disciples, like, okay, you've seen a bunch, you've heard a bunch, you've watched me interacting with people, like, what's the word on the street about me? Who do people think that I am? And they responded, they said, well, Jesus, some people think you're like a reincarnated Old Testament prophet, which raises a bunch of questions we don't have time to get into today. But, and then Jesus says to his disciples, okay, that's them. What about you guys? You guys have front row seats. Who do you believe that I am? And Peter, who's Jesus' oldest and most impulsive disciple, responded, this way. He says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. In other words, you, Jesus, are the anointed one that the Jewish people have been waiting for and longing for and praying for that God would send for hundreds of years. We've been waiting and we think you are the one. And Jesus responded, you're right. And then Jesus said, and I tell you that you are Peter and on this rock, on this proclamation of who I am, I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. It will be unstoppable. Now, unfortunately, when you and I see the word church, we immediately think of a sacred space, a building. But honestly, the word church should never have made it into the English language. And some of you are like, what? <laughs> the word translated church here is the Greek word ekklesia, and it literally translates gathering, assembly, or congregation of people. In other words, no building necessary. Like the building isn't the point, the people are the point. So in this moment, Jesus didn't announce a new collection of sacred spaces that he was about to unleash on the world but new gatherings of people who would come to believe in him. And in fact, in the first English translation of the Bible, the word church doesn't even appear because the translator, a man by the name of William Tyndale, had the courage not to be politically correct. He translated ecclesia as congregation. I tell you that you are Peter and on this rock, I will build my congregation and the gates of Hades will not stand against it. So he translated ecclesia as congregation and he was burned at the stake as a result. 
And then the people that were in control had a meeting in which they decided that in spite of what Jesus had said, what Jesus had meant was to be a collection of sacred places. And so to communicate that, they took a German word that translates the Lord's house and inserted it into the English version of the New Testament. And that's why when we think of church, we tend to think of sacred space. But as I've said, that's not what Jesus intended in his vision Religion was to move beyond sacred spaces. His followers were to organize gatherings of people, and the building is optional. And so as I see it, you know, this was the first sign that Jesus intended to completely reinvent religion, but there's more. And I think the second observation is even more stunning. So buckle up. It goes like this. Jesus instituted a new covenant between people and God. And I'll introduce this one this week and we'll come back to it because it's so, so important. Uh, fun fact, by the way, the word covenant means testament. Like your Bible is organized into the Old Testament and the New Testament. You might say the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. Uh, so before this New Covenant, most ancient religions dictated that people had to go to a temple, a sacred space, and then ask a priest to go to God on their behalf. And that was the way religion had worked for thousands of years. In fact, um, in many cultures, including the Jewish culture, it was the only way religion had ever worked. Until that is the day that Jesus began to suggest to his first followers that the time of a new covenant was at hand. And there was a prophecy in the Old Testament that the day would come when a new covenant would be brought to life, but the disciples didn't really know much about it. And then Jesus started to say, that time is at hand. Moreover, Jesus suggested that with this new covenant, God would open a way, not just for Jewish people, but for all people everywhere to approach him directly. In other words, building optional, and you don't need a priest. In fact, the temple and the priest, that whole system would soon be obsolete. Because Jesus would say, I am about to make, actually, I am about to be the final sacrifice for sin. Here, here, here's how Jesus said it at the last supper that he shared with his followers. And yeah, it was that last supper. Jesus said, this cup, so he holds up a, a cup of wine that was a part of the meal they were eating. This cup is like the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. And you should know that sitting around the table that day, Jesus' first disciples would have been confused. I mean, they would have thought like, okay, he's doing it again. Like, <laughs> Jesus, we're not following you. I mean, how can you establish a new covenant in your blood? We're having dinner. You're not bleeding. And I mean, you probably know that and you're Jesus. So we're just going to assume that there's more going on here. But, but then, of course, less than a day later, as they watched Jesus bleed to death on a Roman cross, one by one, it dawned on them. Jesus meant what he said. Like, he really meant that he was going to be the final sacrifice for sin. He was, he was in a very literal sense, as John the Baptist had said at the beginning of his public ministry, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, literally to pick up and carry away or carry off the sin of the world. And that this really was good news, not just for the Jews, but for all people everywhere because Jesus came to bring about a new covenant, a new testament, new rules of relationship between people and their creator. And that, as I see it, was the second sign 
that Jesus intended to completely reinvent religion. Now, the third uh, is really it was a move that has the potential to bring a level of clarity and freedom that had previously been impossible under every other religious system. And I'll explain it this way. Uh, Jesus gave new meaning to the sacred text. Jesus gave new meaning to the sacred text. And here's why I say that. One day, while Jesus was teaching, he said something that made the Jewish religious professionals want to stone him to death. Like, not, not like, like, not like literally, like pick up stones and stone him. And here's what he said to them. He said, do not think that I have come to abolish the law and the prophets. So he's speaking here of the Old Testament rules. Do not think I have come to abolish the law and the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them which for us is a little cryptic and weird. And you're like, Jesus, what are you talking about? But to the Jewish mind, to that first century religious mind, to fulfill something was to bring it to its intended end. In other words, Jesus claimed that the entire Old Testament, all of the history and the prophets and the rules pointed to and funneled down to him, which would have made the religious leaders look at him and say, who do you think you are? are. Everything points to you. And again, we miss that, that this was shocking and disturbing and stunning. But here's the thing. It was also true. In fact, 20 years or so after the resurrection of Jesus, the Jewish authors of the New Testament, the letters that make up the bulk of our New Testament, looked back on their history and they concluded that the Old Testament all the stories, all the poetry, all the prophecy functioned as a sort of cocoon. And from the cocoon, the savior of the world was born. And, and although the cocoon played an extraordinary role in human history, once it was finished, like once the butterfly's out of the cocoon, it's finished. And by the way, I don't know if you've ever caught this, but the last words uttered by Jesus when he's dying on the cross, three words, it is finished, drop the shofar, boom, right? Yeah. And that, as I see it, was the third sign that Jesus intended to completely reinvent religion. And so we just have one more that I want to explore with you uh, this morning, and then we'll come back and circle around these in some more detail in the coming weeks. But the final sign I want to show you has to do with religious rules. And as you already know, uh, most ancient religions and many, many modern religions presented their followers with a veritable labyrinth of instructions and prohibitions, the to-dos and the to-don'ts, right? But see, Jesus' message was shockingly different. His instructions to his followers under the new covenant were way more simple than the 613 rules that you find in the Jewish Old Testament. In fact, instead of rules, Jesus instituted a new movement defining ethic. He said it this way, during the last supper, a new command I give you. So a new command to go along with a new covenant. He says, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. And when he said this, Jesus' first followers knew exactly what he meant. He wasn't calling for random acts of kindness, though those are good. This was way deeper, way richer than that. It's like right before he said this, at the beginning of that Last Supper, Jesus had walked in this room and began to wash his disciples' feet, like with the same hands that had healed the blind and the same arms that had embraced Lazarus after he rose from the dead. In fact, in this moment, Jesus did for them what they had not thought to do for each other because they thought they were too good to wash feet. 
And then Jesus looks at him and he says, listen, as I have done this for you, that's what you're to do for one another. And I think he was trying to shift their focus, shift their paradigm, and shift their hearts because he says, there's going to be moments moving forward when you start to gain notoriety because of your association with me. Like you guys are going to take the church forward. And during those times when people are desperate to hear from you and they want to sit at your feet to listen to you, I want you to remember this night because you will never be greater than me. You already knew that. And I washed your feet. It's like in this moment, Jesus effectively took our world's functional paradigm of leadership and turned it upside down. He said, if you want to lead well, if you, you need to love like I love and you need to serve like I served. If you want to lead well, and this is true of church leaders, this is true for anyone who calls himself a follower of Jesus, you need to love well and serve well because that's what he did. And I'm telling you, Jesus' first followers never forgot this moment. In fact, right after he gave them this new command to go along with the new covenant, he told them that this sort of sacrificial love and service was to be the trademark of his movement. He said it this way. By this, and the way you love and the way you serve, by this, everyone will know that you're my disciples if you love one another. You're like, Jesus, does it mean like, you know, we have to keep all the rules and stuff? No, no, it's not about that. It's about how well you love one another. It's like in Jesus' design for religion. He reinvented the whole thing. The law of love, was to replace law-keeping. And self-sacrifice was to replace animal sacrifice. That's a good thing, right? Because, see, to follow the example of Jesus, and he said to his first followers and to us today, follow me. To follow Jesus is to love and serve with no strings attached. And practically what this means is that the primary evidence that you're someone who is trying to follow Jesus, and, you know, none of us do it perfectly— but the primary evidence that you're someone who's trying to follow Jesus isn't how well you pray or how much you study the Bible or how often you attend church, whether in person or online. Gotcha, online, yeah. It's actually how well you love and serve the people in your life who are particularly difficult to love and serve. And I don't like that either, right? Loving people that are easy to love is easy to do. Loving people that are not easy to love is not easy to do. And Jesus says, when you love people that are tough to love, that's when the world is going to see that what I am about is powerful and transformational and revolutionary. I guess what I'm trying to say this morning is when you consider the evidence, Jesus was about nothing less than a total reinvention of religion. No more sacred places, no more special spiritual people, no more complicated laws that you have to try to follow to stay right with God and you try to find loopholes to work around. It was supposed to be simple. It was supposed to be different. It was supposed to be better, which again, you're like, then what happened? <laughs> Great question. After the resurrection of Jesus, the church got off to an amazing start. Like one by one, people began to step away from the assumptions of ancient religion and find freedom under the new covenant. And as this happened, new communities, new gatherings, new ecclesias of Jesus' followers began to spring up first in and around Jerusalem, the city where Jesus had been crucified and raised from the dead, and then spreading all around the Roman world. But as we'll see next week, along the way, 
something regrettable, though predictable, happened. Namely, some of the traditions and assumptions and attitudes of traditional religion began to creep in and threatened to pollute the dream that Jesus had for his church. And I think it's because human conscience had been so fine-tuned to a particular way of thinking about religion. I mean, this was almost inevitable. And unfortunately, much of that thinking is still a part of the church, like capital C, Worldwide Church today. And so I think for the most part, that's the reason why so many people resist investigating faith in Jesus. But I'm also convinced that it doesn't have to be this way. Like, we can do it better here and now. And it's not because of some new thing that we found. It's because we've actually gone all the way back to the beginning and said, okay, what does Jesus really want for his church? And let's build a church around that because that is beautiful and that is compelling. And that is a message our world still desperately needs more than ever needs. I mean, I'm actually convinced that the closer we can get to what Jesus had in mind, the greater impact we can have in our community and the greater impact the gospel, the good news can have in our lives. Because I'm telling you, it's no exaggeration to say that God sent Jesus to completely reinvent human religion. And that is good news that everybody needs to hear. Well, before I let you go, um, we have a new tradition around here that started about eight weeks ago. And we have some volunteers that are going to be under this screen. And if you came in this morning and you need to talk to someone, you need to pray with someone. Uh, you came and you're like, yeah, the history is interesting. I need, I, need, I need something a little more personal today. We'd love to invite you to come under the screen and, and we'd love to meet you and just to pray with you. Um, and we'll do that every week. So if this isn't your week, that's okay too. It's kind of a new thing we're doing around here. Um, okay, so now I'd love to invite you to stand if you're here in the room. And I'll close our time in prayer. Heavenly Father, this is the gospel that the world desperately needs. Thank you for the beauty. Thank you for the simplicity. Thank you for the love and the grace that makes it possible. I pray as we each wrestle with our own understanding of church and of what it means to follow Jesus, you would lead us by your spirit into a freedom that we have never imagined that was possible. That you really mean it when you say you are our heavenly father and just like earthly fathers love their children more than anything in the world, you, a perfect heavenly father, love us more than we can possibly understand. I pray that as this stirs in us, you, you would help us reframe even how we think about sin, how we think about forgiveness, how we think about mercy. I pray that this ne these next few weeks, you would challenge us and you would equip us to be a light in our world, a light that's a little closer to maybe what Jesus had in mind. And so we thank you for him. We thank you for the hope that we have because of him and in him and through him. And I pray for your grace and your peace to rest on us all. In the matchless name of your son, our savior, the Messiah, the Christ, the anointed one.
King Jesus, we pray. And everyone said, amen. Friends, grace and peace to you. We'll see you next week for part two of Reinventing Religion.